it, Red Arms. Give it your all. We'll drink the wine till the cup is dry and kiss the girls and then the cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance with Jack of the Shadows. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tales of Red Arm. I'm your host, Justin. And today we're going to jump into chapter one of book three, The Dragon Reborn. Chapter one, Waiting. So, I'm going to start this out with probably everyone's favorite part of starting a new book in this series, which is the intro. I'm not going to go into the extended part, just the main part that is pretty much in every book. The wheel of time turns, and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the third age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But it was a beginning. I love reading that. <laughs> I gotta say, it is very confusing to me that there are neither beginnings nor endings in the wheel, but it, it's a beginning. So I'm assuming it just means it's a subset beginning, as in like a small, tiny beginning of something like similar to how it's the beginning of a person's life when they are born. It's not a beginning in the wheel of time, but or to the turning of the time wheel of time, but it's a new part of the pattern that is being drafted by the wheel. Is my assumption anyway. Um, could be wrong, but not much else is really brought upon it that I can see in the books. And there's going to be a lot of really good uh, descriptions in this chapter, so I definitely encourage you to check it out. Um, it's one of my favorite parts about Robert Jordan is that he's very descriptive and it gives you a very good landscape image. If you are, uh, one of the kind of people like me who typically see everything in like a cinematic version in my brain as I read things so I can kind of see how it plays out. Maybe that's why I have such a good imagination. I don't know, but it's definitely worth reading. So don't skip it. But here at the beginning of chapter one, we got um, this one part here. This introduction to a character we all know, if you've read at least the last two books. <laughs> um, so I'll go ahead and read it. Sitting his horse just inside a thicket of leather leaf and pine, Perrin Barra shivered and tugged his fur-lined cloak closer. As close as he could with a longbow in one hand and a great half-moon axe at his belt. It was a good axe of cold steel. Perrin had pumped the bellows the day Master Luhan had made it. The wind jerked at his cloak, pulling the hood back from his shaggy curls, and cut through his coat. He wiggled his toes in his boots for warmth and shifted on his high-cantled saddle. But his mind was not really on the cold. Eyeing his five companions, he wondered if they, too felt it. Not the waiting they had been sent there for, but something more. 
so yeah, we get introduced to Paranebara, the beginning of chapter one. Um, it's an interesting situation, and we'll be inter introduced to uh, his horse in a second. But before we jump into that, I did want to point out that he's there in the mountains of mist, and it's really, really cold. And he's wearing a fur-lined coat, or fur-lined cloak, I should say. Um, he's holding a longbow, assumedly a Two Rivers longbow, and his great half-moon axe at his belt. Um, he was there when his uh, master, Master Luhan, made it, which means he's more or less familiar with the item, not necessarily with how to use it, but with the item itself. Um, and we remember that he got it from Master Luhan when the merchant guard wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> um, so Master Luhan gave it to him as he left. Um, because he was <laughs> playing around with it in the yard. But, uh, so he's got his cloak gets pulled back by the wind and he's got his head of shaggy curls. Um, trying to keep a little bit warm here and there. He's got five companions and we'll find out shortly who they are. But then we get introduced to his horse stepper. Now I'm pretty sure, um, most horses you hear by the main characters and whatnot, or even some of the side characters, when they have names, there's a special imagery you could come up with that because, like, when you think of Stepper, in this case, it's a Dun Stallion, quick feet, but um, he's kind of like a go to horse, if you will, <laughs> for parents specifically. But yeah, Stepper's a fun little horse that's just, you know, quick on his feet and whatnot, which helps out Parent a lot. So then Perrin sniffs the wind, not even trying to like think about it, and you know he smells horse that's around him, men and men sweat. A rabbit had gone by, running away from a fox, but the fox hadn't gotten it. But he notices that he's doing that and stops, and he's like, man, I really want a stuffy nose right now, and I wouldn't even let Moraine fix it. But in the back of his mind, it's there's this little tickling, and he doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that it's there and he doesn't mention it to his companions and the other five guys have short horse bows at the ready searching the sky and the thin thinly treed slopes um they don't seem to be bothered by the wind you know blowing their cloaks out like banners and the description we get for them is a two-handed sword hilt stuck up above each man's shoulder through a slit in his cloak the sight of their bare heads, shaven except for top knots, made Perrin feel colder. So, these are Shinarans, and because this weather's practically spring from where they're from, and they're not soft. They've been hardened by life, the weather, what the Borderlands are notorious for, and fighting the shadow, like it's been taken out of them and pretty much these guys are soldiers from birth. They're the solid group, but he's a little 
in awe of the fact that they defer to him and follow his lead as if he has a special right or something or some special knowledge, but he knows in reality it's because of who his friends are. Um, they're not as tall as him or as big. You know, a blacksmith's apprentice had given him arms and shoulders to make two of most men, so he's a pretty big dude. But he had begun shaving every day to stop their jokes about his youth, so he's his face is slowly growing in a beard, and he's trying to, like, pretty much keep it down. And they're friendly jokes about it and everything, but he doesn't want them starting up again because he talks of feelings. But then Perrin remembers he's supposed to keep watch, so he's checking the arrow knocked on his longbow and just looking in the valley, you know, off to the west. Lots of snow, pretty much what's remaining of winter and whatnot. But... He's checking it, and it's a lot of people, you know, the mines being far south and then further north. Um, a lot of people think that's bad luck to be in the mountains of mist, and many would avoid entering them if they could. And then Perrin's eyes glitter like burnished gold. But then the tickling becomes an itch. This little tickling in the back of his head. And he's like, no, and he pushes the itch aside, but the expectation doesn't go away, and he's just kind of like sitting on the brink of it. And he's like, well, maybe something unpleasant lays in the mountains around them, but there's a way to know, you know, where men rarely come, there's probably always wolves. But he crushes the thought before it has a chance to kind of take place, and he's like, well, better to wonder, you know, Definitely than that. And this is something that you want to keep kind of tucked away for later because it might become relevant <laughs> and, and not too in the new, yeah, and not too far future. He's like, well, if there's anything out there, the Outriders are going to find it. He's like, well, this is my forge. I'll tend to it. They could tend to their own. So he can see further than the others. So he was the first one to spot a rider coming from Terabon, the direction of Terabon, I should say. Um, but the rider was only a spot of bright colors on a horseback, kind of going through the trees in the distance. Um, now seen, now hidden, and it's a piebald horse. And he's like, oh, finally. But he's about to announce her. When Masima suddenly mutters, Raven, like it's a curse. So Perrin jerks his head up, and this big black bird was quartering over the treetops no more than 100 paces away. And it's Cory. It might have been carrying dead in the snow or some small animal, but they're not going to take the chance. And it doesn't seem to have seen them, but an oncoming rider would soon be in its sight. But even as he spotted the raven, his bow comes up, and he drew, and the fletchings to cheek, to ear, and loosed, all in one smooth motion. And he was dimly aware of the slap of bowstrings beside him, but his attention was all on the black bird. And then suddenly it cartwheels in the shower of midnight feathers as his arrow finds it, and it tumbles out of the sky as two more arrows streak by. Bows half drawn, the other Shinaran searched the sky to see if it had a companion. And Perrin's like, well, do the ravens have to report, or does he, you know, just see what it sees? And he didn't think anyone would hear it, but Ragan, the youngest of the Shinarans, that's less than ten years older, his elder, 
In other words, or Perrin's being under 20 means Regan's not even like 30. Um, he fits another arrow to his sharp bow, and Regan's like, well, it has to report to a halfman usually. Um, he's like, man, if Heartsbane saw Raven, what the Raven saw, we'd all been dead before we reached the mountains. And his voice seems kind of just like, meh, matter of every day. Now, in the Borderlands, there's this bounty on ravens, and no one ever assumes that the raven was just a bird. And of course, Perrin doesn't like hearing this news from Ragan, so he kind of shivers, and he covers the different names in different lands that you hear. Heartsbane, Soulsbane, Heartfang, Lord of the Grave, Lord of the Twilight, and everywhere, Father of Lies and the Dark One, all to avoid giving him his true name and drawing his attention. The Dark One often used ravens and crows, and even rats in cities. So Baron draws another broadhead arrow from the quiver on his hip that's balanced the axe on the other side. And Ragan kind of admires Perrin's bow. He's like, that may be as big as a club, but it could shoot. I'd hate to see what that could do to a man in armor. And right now, the Shinarns are only wearing light mail under their plain coats, but usually they fought in armor, man and horse alike. And Masima kind of sneers at this, with his triangular scar on his dark cheek, twisting his contemptuous grin. He's like, ah, too long for horseback. A good breastplate will stop even a pile arrow, except at close range. And if your first shot fails, the man you're shooting at will carve your guts out. And Rakan's just like, eh, that's just it, Masima. With this Two Rivers bow, I'll wager you don't have to be so close. And Masima tried to open his mouth. But everyone's favorite. Uno pops in. He's like, you two f stop flaming or stop flapping your bloody tongues. And he's got a long scar down the left side of his face and an eye gone. His features are pretty hard, even for a Shinaran. He'd acquired a painted eye patch on their way into the mountains during autumn. A permanently frowning eye in a fiery red that did nothing to make a stare easier to face. If you can't keep your bloody minds on the bloody task at hand, I'll see if you give extra flaming guard duty tonight. It will bloody sell you. And of course, Ragan and Masima, you know, quiet down under his stare. And he gave him a last scowl, and then he turns to Perrin, and he's like, well, do you see anything? And his tone's a little gruffer than he might have been with the commander put over him by the King of Shinar, or the Lord of Faldara. But there was something in it of readiness to basically just do whatever Perrin suggests. Now, since it had been quiet, the skies had been kind of quiet, their assumption is that the, rain, the raven was alone, and not in a, a flock or anything, which would have been probably very difficult to kill all of them on. Or in this case, I guess a murder of crows. <laughs> but the Shinarans know that he can see pretty far, and they just assume it's natural and, you know, whatever. And the color of his eyes, they just assume that's just what it is what it is. But they don't really know everything, not by even 50%. Like, it's just, they just accept him, and... They just seem to accept everything and anything. The world's changing is what they say. and Everything spins in the wheel of chance and change. And if a, if a man's color or a man's eyes had a color no man's eyes had ever had been, what what does it matter now? Parents like, well, she's on her way here. You should see her just about now, right over there. And Uno strains forward with his one real eye squinting and, you know, finally nodded doubtfully. He's like, well, there's bloody something over there. The others nod and murmur, and then he glares at them, and they just 
look up at the skies, like nothing to see here, you know, just whistling. Um, and then per Perrin realized that the bright colors on the distant rider was, and he's like, it's a vivid green skirt peeking out beneath a bright red cloak. And he's like, she's one of the Tuatha on the traveling people. And no one else had ever heard of dressing such brilliant colors and odd combinations, not choosing too willingly. And the women they had met occasionally or guided even deeper into the mountains had a beggar in rags struggling through foot on a snowstorm, a merchant by herself leading a string of laden pack horses, a lady in silks and fine furs, the red tasseled reins on her palfrey and gold worked on her saddle. The, the beggar departed with a purse of silver, more than Perrin thought they could afford to give, until the lady gave an even fatter gold purse. And women from every station in life, all alone, from Terabon and Gildon and even Amadisia. But he never thought he'd see one of the two Othon. And it was like a bloody tinker? And the others were just as surprised as he was. And Ragan's top knot waves as he shakes his head. He's like, a tinker would be mixed in this. Either she's not a tinker or she's not the one we're supposed to meet. And Masima doesn't like tinkers. And he thinks they're useless cowards. And Uno's like... Cowards, Masima. If you were a woman, would you have the flaming nerve to ride up here all alone and bloody unarmed? And there's no doubt that if she's a Tuathan, she'd be unarmed. Masima kept his mouth shut, but the scar on his cheek stood out tight and pale. He's like, burn me if I would. That being Ragan. He's like, burn me if you would either, Masima. Masima just grabs his cloak and, you know, pulls it closer and searches the sky. Sorts. <laughs> it's like, the light send that flaming carrier eater was flaming alone. And then eventually the shaggy brown and white mare gets closer and closer and gets its way not too far away from them. Some snowbanks and some trees between them. And it stops and then she looks down and pulls the cloak over her head. And she real and Perrin realizes that she saw the raven that they'd shot down. And it's like, oh, stop looking at the bird and come on. Maybe you got word that we can finally leave from here. And so Moraine wouldn't let them leave before spring, at least. That's what he thinks, unless they get news. And he's like, burn her. And he's like, not sure if it meant the Aes Sedai or the Tinker, who just seems to be taking her time. And then she keeps on as it was. It'd be a good 30 paces to one side of the thicket. And, you know, her eyes fixed on where the piebald stepped. She gave no sign she'd be able to see them amongst the trees. So Perrin's like, all right, and he digs his heels into the stallion, and he, Stepper leaps ahead, and Uno quietly says, forward! And Stepper's halfway to her before she seems to become aware of them, and then she jerks her mare to a halt with a start. And they form kind of an arc around her, with her centered, and <laughs> it's eye-wrenching blue in the pattern of a tyrant maze. She had her red cloak even more, you know, garish. And she's not young. She's got gray showing in her thick, or gray showing thick in her hair, and it was not hidden by her cowl. But her face had a few lines other than the disapproving frown she ran over with all their weapons. And if she was alarmed at meeting any armed men in the heart of the mountain wilderness, she gave no sign of it. Her hands rested easily on the high pommel of her worn but well kept saddle, and she didn't smell afraid. 
And Perrin's like, oh, stop that, telling himself, you know. And he made his voice as soft as he could so it didn't frighten her. He's like, hey, my name's Perrin, good mistress. If you need help, I will do what I can. If not, go with the light. But unless the Tuathon have changed their ways, you are far from your wagons. She studies for a moment before speaking, and she's got a bit of a gentleness in her dark eyes, which is pretty normal of traveling people. She's like, well, I seek in a woman. And it's a bit of a small, but it was there. And not just any woman, but an Aes Sedai. And so Perrin asked, like, did she have a name, good mistress? And he'd done this a lot in the past few months to really need her reply, but <laughs> Iron was spoiled for want of care. He's like, well, she is called, well, sometimes she is called Moraine. My name is Leia. And Leia's L-E-Y-A. Could be, I guess, also Leah as well, but looks more like a Leia to me. <laughs> and he's like, all right, I'll take you to her, Mistress Leia. Uh, we have warm fires and with luck, something hot to eat. And he doesn't start moving immediately and he asks like how did you find us he asked before but each time rain sent him out to the spot she named but woman she knows would come the answer would be the same as always but he had to ask she's like well i just knew if i came this way someone would find me and take me to her i just knew i have news for her so parent doesn't ask what news and then the woman just give the information they brought only to moraine He's like, and then Moraine tells us what she chooses. And Aes Sedai never lie, but it is said that the truth of an Aes Sedai told you is not always the truth you thought it was. He's like, oh well, whatever. I'm too late for it now. And then he's like, this way, Mr. Slaya. And he gestures up the mountainside. And the Shinarans with Uno at their head fall in behind Perrin and Leia as they begin to climb. The Borderlanders are checking the sky as much as the land, but whoever's in the last keeps a special watch on their back trail. And for a while, they ride in silence, except for the sound of, you know, the horse's hooves. But sometimes they would send rock clattering across bare stretches or crunching snow crust. But he's a little uncomfortable under her scrutiny, or under the scrutiny of her eyes. At his bow, his axe, his face. But she doesn't say anything. And he tries to keep his eyes away from her so she doesn't give much thought to his eye color. And he's like, I was surprised to see one of the traveling people believing as you guys do. And she's like, well, it's possible to oppose evil without doing violence. Just, you know, simple, obvious truth. And Perrin grunts sourly, then has to, then not really has to, but mutters an apology. He's like, well, what it, whereas you say, Mistress Leia. And then she kind of goes into her usual, you know, monologue, of, you know, violence harms the doer as much as the victim. That is why we flee those who harm us, to save them from the harm themselves as much as our own safety. If we do violence to oppose evil, soon we no different from what we struggle against. It's the strength of our belief that we fight the shadow. Perrin snorts again, and he's like, I hope you never have to face Trollocs. The strength of your belief, the strength of their swords will cut you down where you stand. And she's like, it is better to die than to... But Perrin gets really angry and goes right over her. And he's angry that she wouldn't see, angry that she would rather actually rather die than harm somebody, no matter how evil. He's like, if you run, they will hunt you and kill you and eat your corpse. Or they may not wait until it is a corpse, but either way, you are dead and it is evil has won. And there are men just as cruel, dark friends and others. 
more others than I would have believed even a year ago. Let the white folks decide you tinkers don't walk in the light and see how many of you have the strength of the, your belief to keep you alive. So she penetrates at him, or penetrating look at him. And he's, she's like, and yet you're not happy with your weapons. And he's like, well, how did she know that? And he shakes his head and he's just like, the creator made the world, not I. I must live the best I can in the world the way it is. And she softly replies with, so sad for one so young. Why so sad? <laughs> the first thing that popped in my head when I read this is the Joker going, why so serious? And he's like, well, I should be watching, not talking. You won't thank me if I get you lost. So he pushes Stepper forward to cut off any further conversations, but he could feel her looking at him. And he's like, sad? I'm not just, I'm not sad. Just like, I don't know. There's got to be a better way. That's all. And it seems like he's struggling with this pacifism of the traveling people or the tinkers. And the fact that at some point you have to stand up and fight against evil. Otherwise, evil just wins. And you're not really fighting against the shadow if you die. And if everyone dies. But he has this minor struggle. I wouldn't call it anything super crazy or whatnot. But he's still trying to figure himself out in terms of um, what's all happening with, you know, the Dragon Reborn popping up and being one of his best friends and such. So... You know, they're going over the slip on the mountain and they go through Forest Valley with a stream and everything. And in the distance, the side of the mountain has been carved into the semblance of two towering forms, a man and a woman. Perrin thought they might be, though the wind and rain had long since made that uncertain. Even Moraine claimed to be unsure who they were supposed to be or when the granite had been cut. There's two possibilities that I could think of, considering this could be near the territory that used to be the territory of Manetherin. So it could be the former king and queen of Manetherin at some point, and this is just one of their far outskirts, maybe a border of some sort or something. Um, this could also be a male and female Aes Sedai, Although it's unlikely from the Age of Legends, um, due to the nature of the Mountains of Mist more than likely being created at the breaking. And in the breaking is basically tectonic plates and stuff shifting to form, you know, the Mountains of Mist or the Spine of the World, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's possible that there are Aes Sedai right after the breaking and it was something that was given before but it's unlikely it seems more likely to be more of manetherin because of the location um but there's nothing really deep into it but i like to think that that's probably just a manetherin statue of royalty of some port and some line but they head through this little clear water stream and Pricklebacks and small trout dart away from the horse's hooves. Um, they'd spot a deer. But they'd bounce into the trees. they get a large mountain cat. Just kind of be frustrated that it's not able to catch the deer. It eyes the horses, but then, you know, lash of its tail vanishes after the deer. And there's very little in the mountains that's showing signs of life. 
a couple birds perched on limbs or back at the ground when the snow melted, and they'd probably return to the heights in a few weeks, but not quite yet. But luckily, they don't see any more ravens. But then, it's late afternoon by the time they get between the two steep sloped mountains, snowy peaks, as, you know, it's wrapped in cloud as always. And they turn into a smaller stream that slashed downward over gray stones. And then a bird calls in the tree, and then another answered from ahead. And Perrin smiles, you know, bluefinch calls. It's a borderland bird, and no one rides this way without being seen. He rubbed his nose and didn't think the didn't look at the tree the first bird, quote-unquote, had called from. Their path is a bit narrow as they ride through the scrubby leather leaf and a few gnarled mountain oaks, but the ground begins to level a bit as they ride beside the stream, but becomes barely wider than a man on horseback, and the stream itself no more than a tall man could step across. Leia, behind Perrin, starts murmuring to herself, but he looks over her shoulder and she's casting worried glances up the steep slopes to either side. And it seems like it's impossible that they would not fall, but the Shinarans rode easily at the be at <laughs> finally beginning to relax. And then abruptly, a deep oval bowl between the mountains opened up before them, and its sides steep, but not nearly so precipitous as the narrow passage they were in. And the stream rises up and Perrin's sharp eye picked out a man with the top knot of the Shinarans up in the limbs of an oak to his left. Had a red-winged jay called instead of a bluefinch, he would not have been alone, and the way in would not have been so easy. But a handful of men could hold that passage against an army. And if an army came, a handful would have to. But among the trees around the bowl, there's log huts not really visible and that gathered around cook fires at the bottom of the bowl seems to have this first look at not having shelter. But then there are fewer than a dozen in sight, but not many more out of sight. Most of them looked around to the sound of horses and some waved. The bowl seems to fill with the smell of men and horses cooking burning wood. Your usual campsite smells and sights, I guess. But a long white banner hungs limply from a tall, a tall pole near them, and one form at least half again as tall as anyone else, sat on a log engrossed in a book that was small in his huge hands. For those who are not sure, that's loyal. Everyone's favorite Ogier. And his attention never wavered, even... Even when the other person without a top knot, the only other person without a top knot shouts, Oh, so you found her, did you? I thought you'd be gotten this night this time. And it was a young woman's voice, but she wore a boy's coat and breeches and had her hair cut short. This is Min. I'm going to read this final part before we close out the chapter. A burst of wind swirled into the bowl, making cloaks flap and rippling the banner out to its full length. For a moment, the creature on it seemed to ride the wind. A four-legged serpent scaled in gold and scarlet, golden-maned like a lion, and its feet each tipped with five golden claws. A banner of legend. A banner most men would not know if they saw it, but would fear when they learned its name. 
Perrin waved a hand that took it all in as he led the way down to the bowl. Welcome to the camp of the Dragon Reborn, Leia. And that's that. We get that quick glimpse of the four-legged serpent, a.k.a. dragon. And Perrin introducing the camp of the Dragon Reborn to the Tinker. Nothing super exciting, but there is a little bit of information peeking in out of this. And like I said, there's some stuff you want to save for later. But it's something I think was considerably a good a good start to the the first chapter of the book. And I mean, I've read the series, so I obviously know what's coming next. But um for a good build-up, you got these people who've been waiting in the mountains for months, and they're waiting to see what's going to happen, and maybe this is the information that'll keep it moving, or maybe they'll have to wait and more people will show up. Um, guess you'll just have to find out in the next chapters. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's. I thought it wasn't a bad one. A lot of description, like holy moly, a lot of descriptions. Um, I skipped quite a bit of description, so definitely check that out. It's it's great. Definitely creates a world in your mind. Um, makes it all add to the wonder, I guess, of the fantasy series. But yeah, um, that's it for chapter one. Chapter two will be in the next episode. And I hope you guys will join me for that one as well. Uh, I... I'm looking forward to this roller coaster ride of a, uh, of a book because it has a whole lot going in it, and we get to kind of experience the world as a whole a little bit more. And it's one of favorites of people of the series. I know four is everyone's favorite, but uh, book two and book three have a special place in a lot of people's hearts. So, um, that being said, uh, I'd love to hear what you guys think about it. You can reach out to me on. Uh, Twitter, Facebook. Um, on Facebook, it's just Tales of Red Arm. On Twitter, it's at Tales of Red Arm. Um, if you want to directly email me, you can just Tales of Red Arm at gmail.com. Uh, whatever you'd like. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys. And, you know, I, I don't mind the hate mail as much as most people do. <laughs> But yeah, uh, thanks everybody for hanging out. Uh, definitely looking forward to doing this entire book. Uh, it'll be fun. I don't remember. I think there is 56 chapters in this book. I think that, I don't know if that counts. Technically 57 because the prologue. So technically 57 episodes to really cover this book. But uh, I think it'll be fun. So I'm looking forward to it. But thanks again, everybody, for hanging out. Um, next episode will be as per usual next week. And looking forward to telling you guys more about the story. So thanks again, everybody, for hanging out. And we'll see you next time. Until then. We drink all night and dance all day And on the girls we'll spend our pay And when we're done then we'll awake To dance with Jack of the Shadows
We'll, we'll toss the dice however they fall When struggle that girls be they short or tall Then follow young Matt wherever he calls To dance with Jack of the Shadows We'll toss the dice however they fall Then struggle that girls be they short or tall Then follow Lord Matt wherever he calls To dance with Jack of the Shadows We'll give a yell with a bloody curse And hog the maids, it could be worse Let's ride away with the dark woods first To dance with Jack of the Shadows Here! 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 Here!